0: Hello, and welcome to Consent Friend, brought to you by SOAS Radio.
1: We are Indigo and Zanab, and we will be guiding you through today's episode, where we will be discussing the process of reporting sexual violence, how it works, its limitations, and how to seek alternative forms of justice.
0: If you're new to the show, welcome. This is our third episode. In previous episodes, we discussed what is consent and where can I go, offering conversations about what is consent and how we can make our university a safer place, as well as signposting resources to help those of you who have experienced sexual violence. Violence. Want to support a peer, or want to become better at seeking consent?
1: Consentvent is a ten-episode podcast series discussing all things consent. We will be exploring the topic with a wide range of guests, from activists, journalists, educators, and organizers discussing the nuances of consent to hearing about campaigns and organizations aiming to increase safety and to provide justice for survivors.
0: We want this podcast to be a platform for everyone to share opinions and ask questions. In fact, the topic for this episode came from the student suggestion given via our Google form.
1: You'll find in the show notes a link to our Google form, which you can use to give feedback, suggest what topics and guests you'd like to appear, as well as share resources you think could benefit our listeners. We'd love to hear from you. At this point we want to issue a trigger warning. Trigger warnings are used to inform listeners that topics that we will be discussing could be potentially triggering or upsetting so they can decide if they want to continue to listen. We'd like you to know in this episode we will be discussing the process of reporting sexual assault and harassment including an interview with a survivor who sought justice through the SOAS complaints procedure. If you think this will be distressing for you maybe sit this one out.
0: This week we are going to explore what happens when you decide to report an incident of sexual assault or harassment.
1: Obviously this is something that differs dramatically from country to country or even from local authority to local authority. So we decided to go close to home looking at how this works in our very own university.
0: A Freedom of Information request submitted to the school in 2015 details a number of reports of sexual harassment and attempted sexual assault at six cases. Does this mean that incidents like these just don't happen so often in our university? I'd
1: like to argue they do, but there are multiple reasons why people choose not to report an incident of sexual harassment, from fear of re-traumatization through having to recount what has happened, to concerns about ramifications for the perpetrator, distrust of institutions like the police and the university, or many others.
0: Some survivors do decide to report. In this episode, we spoke to Alex, a student at SOAS who, after experiencing sexual assault, decided to report it.
1: At this point, we'd like to let you know that to ensure anonymity, we have removed any identifying details or information about the interviewee from this interview. For that reason, we're using Alex, which is not the interviewee's real name.
2: I considered reporting much after the event has taken place, um, and I d- did try to first go to the Haven, and there, I and at the moment, I was only seeking for just therapies or just some kind of form of counseling that I can get because I've been generally having have had regrets about not reporting at the time and the fact that time was keep passing without me reporting especially while being involved in sexual harassment or sexual assault related like campaigns um kind of made me feel guilty about the action where I was placed and then, um, obviously, one of the first points I went to was the student advice and well-being. Um, I was not too keen, because originally I didn't know there was a counselling um, service available for students like, at length, other than the group therapy's. Um But once I heard that I did go in for a drop-in session, I did notify that it was a case um, that has specifically passed to do with sexual um, harassment or assault. And again, it's a 10 minute um, drop in session. I don't know what happened afterwards, but generally I heard that regardless of the case, because it was a busy period, the waiting list is long. And from what I heard from other students, it could, it usually takes about four or five weeks of waiting. And um, obviously, I wasn't satisfied with being only on one waiting list, so I did go to Haven. Then Haven told me that um, even their waiting list is full, so they can't take in more counseling. They did give me some reference points to other counseling um, facilities. Those I've contacted, and obviously, um, one of my tutors was quite helpful in trying to help me figure out what kind of resources I could tap into in London. And so far, at this point, she was the only the tutor. My academic tutor was the only person who knew about the details so he even did tell me that it's possible to go in for doing a consultation on basically what i what happened to me meets based on my testimony if it meets the definition um such harassment or sexual assault um here in the uk and there you would see the sword officer that's the um police officer um and basically who's specially trained in the gender-based balances that's when I guess I first kind of heard the information on how long it takes for an investigation process to finish. How much, um, like turning in my phone um, for it to be checked to make sure that there's no, how to say, basically that I'm not lying. Um, so basically having to do with forensics. So I did keep this information. I did not report at the time, but basically I was trying to test out what kind of options I had in the UK. And... But that's also because I was quite unsure about the policies I've been reading about, how it's taken up within SOAS, and I honestly had no idea how long the procedures would um, take because nobody had an answer to that, what the investigation would look like. Again, nobody really knew um, what it looked like, or I'm guessing that information couldn't be revealed to me. But generally, um, one of the answers I heard was that This is not with the student union. Going to these different points um, did take up some time, but basically these were what places I was visiting to try to make the best judgment on how to handle, handle my case. The union's procedure is the anonymous one, and I decided not to go for the anonymous complaints. I complained through the school, took longer than I expected, but generally given, and obviously the It went over the school originally um, promised me, or what it led me to expect. But yeah, it's resolved, and at least I'm happy that I no longer have to check my emails or contact um, different people to ask where my case is. And during this procedure, no one was like hostile. People were trying to be professional, but it's just that the people I was talking to and basically on this website that says the people I'm supposed to be talking to didn't really have clear guidelines on how things should be handled. And I can't really blame them because it seems like at the end of the day, all the procedure have been quite ad hoc. And generally, whenever a complaint is raised, the case seems to be that the rules are made up as as it goes along. At least that's the impression. Um, I got, and nobody really told me to believe otherwise, so yeah, um, the evidences I ended up providing were basically what I felt like I needed to provide is because I was reporting quite after the event has taken place, um the text messages I've been sending to one of my close personal friends on right after I knew that it was meeting the definition of sexual assault. To be fair, it's in my case wasn't um case of rape or anything that was physically violent. Um, but generally, I had to have that evidence because otherwise, I would think that investigators might think I'm making things up much later at the point and it's such a common response, not just in the UK, um, other contexts I've seen, so. That was the main point of the um, the evidences I handed in. The rest were witness testimony. But again, I had doubts because I knew that investigators don't always like witness testimony, especially after so much time has passed. And when I went to Haven, um, they called the case of basically were witnesses as they're not the third party witness testimonies. In other words, people's testimonies might be swayed because you already know the person and they're within the group of acquaintances. So, again, the so-called objectivity can always be outed and investigators don't like hearing only the witness testimonies. I didn't expect myself to be 100% believed. But in my case, wasn't found because it says there was no evidence, um, basically. And I'm guessing I understand the reason why the investigator decided that way, to put it fairly and nicely. Um, again, that's another reason why I do have some regrets about not reporting immediately. Um, that's one thing. But ramification for the perpetrator, I don't know. Mine stopped at the informal stage of investigation. means there was only one investigator involved throughout the process, and it wasn't a panel of different... Basically, it didn't go to a full hearing. Um, And I'm guessing what ramifications does it have for the perpetrator afterwards, I don't know, because mine stopped at informal stage. I really don't know what the, the accused person... Feels like, or what the witnesses feel like. That's not the information I have access to. Whatever the rulings they've had. Um, generally, when I've asked them, because I asked like by by the time the investigation finishes, the panel finishes, both me and the other person won't be students anymore. Thus, so as have the power to enforce anything. And the answer I heard is not really. Um, but I still wanted to continue just for the sake of investigation and just knowing what happened on the day of this actual assault I pushed through. I know the different levels of warnings a school can give. If they can actually enforce it is a different story, I think. And they made it quite clear that it's within the school, it's an investigative process. There's not really as much of a strong investigative power as the police, so you can't ask students to turn in their phone, or um, just ask them to reveal any information that... So all of this, the school says it doesn't have power to investigate. It was just very, very unclear for me about what the potential results might be, what the process might be, and I think I talked to almost all of the relevant groups and departments within the school. I was never able to get a clear answer, so... Whether it's enough evidence or no evidence, um, or a lack of evidence, I'm pretty sure the other person knows the behaviours he has done to make other witnesses, part of the witnesses, believe that it was a case of sexual assault. So, and I didn't want this to be another silent case to be passed off, and I had trouble living with the fact. The good news is also it's more easy for me, knowing that I did what I can obviously. um, I wasn't satisfied with the process, I was, but I think I learned a bit about how cases like these are handled in the UK and within the higher education, so, so I guess that first-hand experience is there for me to remember. But yeah, I'm at least like happy I made the reporting, that's one thing I don't really have any regrets upon, I just wish I had done it sooner.
1: One thing I thought was interesting was how many different services Alex had to make contact with in order to get something as simple as counselling.
0: Yeah, I think, to be honest, it can be quite
1: discouraging
0: when the process is so long and then there's such a bureaucracy that you have to go through. And for example, they had to go through SOAS, but they also went to Haven, the Haven. And even then, like in both areas, there was a long waiting time. And the whole whole process can be quite discouraging, um, especially... Especially, um, and I think they mentioned how they weren't from this country. So, really, a good time for SOAS to start reflecting on making a more concise um, and just everything written out from the beginning to the end on how to address this, um, how how to get through the process, and especially like when you're busy and you have. Schoolwork and you've put it off, but they but this is like the least they can do is just make a quick guideline,
1: yeah, and I think account for this, like the campaigns really tried to highlight how confusing, how bureaucratic like the whole process is, and how difficult it is to navigate. Mm-hmm.
0: And imagine you come across one person in that, cause I'm sure you come across many people during the entire process of reporting it. And imagine you come across one person who might not, who might not be having a good day and isn't very receptive to what you have to say. And that can be very discouraging for you to move on. Um, but having a step by step guideline, as rigid as procedures seem, there are people behind, behind these procedures that are willing to help, that want to hear your story and. That's why I think counseling is super important to see above reporting.
1: Yeah, and if people go to last week's episode, we interviewed Susanna, who's the South Students' Union Advice and Wellbeing Caseworker, who helps people deal with these kind of issues and can signpost you to other organizations.
0: I think the thing is is you don't really realize like you might put it off for a while and then when one thing starts falling apart, like or not even falling apart, but like uni or even life, work gets stressful, these kind of things creep up and they hit you when you're least expecting it. So that's why
1: it's like really important to kind of talk it out from the very beginning. So for people who aren't at SOAS, there's also a list of organizations we put in the description of the last episode that um you can find if you want to access any of these kinds of services.
0: And one thing I'd lastly really like to stress is, as we saw in the interview, they kept a personal account of what happened, who they've talked to since the incident. Since the incident. So I think it is really re- reflected in a wider media. If we look at Christine Blasey Ford, who testified in front of Senate, even Lady Gaga, who was on Jim- Jimmy Fallon, how they talked about trauma makes them forget. And that's what your mind tends to do. It tries to push back. Um, traumatic events um, just to cope on a day-to-day basis so it's really important that you keep a record like a personal record written down of everything that happened and all the people you've spoke to since all the places you've been things like that because you don't realize how important that will be and um, like they said when they went when they asked what was important what was needed for to report this case uh, I think the answer that they received was anything that helps, which is pretty vague. So I think the best thing you can do is have a concise written down thing for yourself as well for them to work off of.
1: Yeah and I think writing things down can often like relieve the pressure of constantly having to re-remember the event because you've you've written it down it's there and it might make it easier for some people. So what can be done to help
0: those that are seeking justice? The campaign group account for this was formed as a direct reaction to our university's inefficient and indifferent response to students reporting experiences
1: of gender-based violence. A member of our production team, Harlena, who you will recognise from episode one, met some of the organisers from the account for this campaign group to hear about their work and how they think our university can help survivors achieve justice.
3: It's Halina, one of the co-hosts for Consent Vent, Um, and today we have Account for This, a student-led activist organization um, combating um, the sexual harassment and the harassment policies in general at SOAS. So we have Karen, um, I'm a student activist with Account for This and I use
4: she her pronouns. And I'm Caroline and I use she her pronouns as well and I'm also a student activist in Account for This.
3: In as basic terms as possible, can you describe how the SOAS complaints procedure works? There are multiple procedures that are put in place,
5: but they are essentially skeletons of a procedure that could and should exist in order to ensure that survivors on our campus have access to justice, whatever that means for them. It's largely unclear from both the Internet and from procedures that are documented what the what survivors can expect from engaging with particular procedures procedures um, and what the, the entire process of that looks like. Um, They're really just a skeleton of what really should exist.
4: It doesn't work. So like the question implies, how does it work? It doesn't. Survivors have come forward and said that at the end of the day, um, it's been so confusing that still after having tried to access these procedures, they can't really formulate how or what they are. And um, that at the end of the day, they've been just kind of left by the university and it's just not really um, a survivor centered or supportive network at all at the university.
3: Okay, so what is the current procedure?
4: So uh, there is no clear procedure. Um, There is no definition. There is no simple site on the internet where you can find out um, if you were a survivor, how to access those procedures. If you Google and really go through the depths of uh, SOAS um, website, at some point you might find something that's called a complaints procedure. There is also a um, student disciplinary procedure, but what you get out of those is unclear and it's very messy and who your point of contact is is very messy and so there is really no easy answer to this and I think the fact that survivors have come forward and said we try to access these procedures and we still can't comprehend or tell you what those procedures are shows that there is really none. Um, there's just, as Karen has said, a skeleton. There is a name of a complaints procedure. There is a student disciplinary uh, procedure, but it's very unclear as to what they are and what they do. So I think we're more here to say there is nothing quite in place right now that works. How did the group come together? So the group is a student-led activist group that formed because of survivors that had a informal support network and realized through trying to access these procedures that there is really no working procedure in place. And through this informal network of people that came together um, and shared their experiences, it became clear that action needed to be taken. And this is basically where we're at now.
3: What is the current work of the campaign group? Because you started about a year ago.
5: So the group is less than a year old, but has already begun to engage with the student body and um, begin a conversation, I think most critically, about sexual violence that is taking place within our campus community. This has meant being on radio shows, this has meant open forums so that people can be in contact with each other, the staff, the students, so that people can participate in a conversation and understand what's going on within our community.
3: So what have you learned about effective survivor support through your work as a campaigner? So the first thing and the most important thing, I think that
4: has been realized that there needs to be uh, better and immediate well-being services for survivors um, to basically help them with their needs to offer support, which is right now not in place. Again, there needs to be training of uh, staff members and there needs to be a focal point, a direct point of contact for survivors that is confidential and that is clear um, about what they can expect from this point of contact. So right now, there is no such thing where, where you can access a direct line of contact and you know what you get out of it. So really, on the most basic terms, what needs to happen is there needs to be a direct, immediate well-being service for survivors and there needs to be a confidential and survivor-centered point of contact, um, which then would lead into like a clear and structured and accessible pathway to a referral pathway initially that would lead survivors to a procedure to access justice where possible.
5: And I would just add, when we talk about services that survivors need in the immediate aftermath of experienced sexual violence... This is counseling support. This is academic accommodations. And right now, it's not clear that survivors have immediate access to these things, or even in the case of academic accommodations, whether that's even available for people who have experienced sexual violence. Students need to have access to things that will alleviate the pain of what is just, they've just experienced so that they can begin a healing process. Um, so this is not only about procedure or a policy but also about these basic services that the school should be providing.
3: So I'm a consent uh, workshop facilitator here at SOAS, and we were running workshops at the beginning of the year for freshers. And something that I did put forward was, although we're having these consent workshops, we've made it really clear that the current policy on harassment is under review. So I want to know how far is the review going? The school has been...
5: um conducting a review that, well, they say that they're conducting a review, but it has not been transparent to the students and the people involved um, who should be involved, the students, the staff, the workers. um, It's not clear if this review process is actually taking place, even though that has been articulated. Other players in this involved in this process or not being included and it's it's not a transparent process.
3: What are the main aims of the group and how do you work towards these? I think the
4: main aim um, is to make SOAS a safer space for survivors. So that should be at the very basis of everything that the group is trying to get at. So one of those things would be, for example, to try to push for a well-being service, for example, for survivors. It would be to push for a policy that is survivor centered. And it is also to push the SU, for example, to do the most in their capacity to protect students, but also to stand up for students that have uttered that they felt unsafe in SU premises and that there needs to be action taken in that sense as well. And um, the things that are currently being done by us to work towards those um, aims is um, external consultations, for example, uh, with organizations like Sisters Uncut or Hollaback. To um, review our own policies in that sense, to like come up with our own draft of a policy that would be. In place for a university context. And it is to provide a survivor network, a network for survivors for support. Not to say that we can substitute counselling or we can substitute the university's responsibility in this, but to say that we can bring survivors
3: together so that people can share their stories and share their frustration as well. We interviewed someone called Alec, um, who has been through the school's complaint procedure, and they mentioned that they had to provide whatever seems relevant to evidence their case. So what sort of evidence um, are the school or the union looking for when someone puts forward a harassment case?
5: Working with survivors who have gone to the police, these survivors have been asked for anything from um, a complete download of their cell phone data, um, counselling records from therapy that they have um, accessed, even medical records. So this is not supporting survivors, but treating them as if they are the suspicious ones and that they are the ones that should be investigated is not how any procedure that is looking to be survivor centered and access justice on behalf of people who have experienced sexual violence. This is re-traumatizing. It enables a lack of control and healing that survivors need to be accessing when they access any type of reporting service um, and instead can re-traumatize them through um, a total lack of control of, of their own data and their own histories
3: the harassment policy um here at soas and the first point i read was the person reporting should sit down with the person they're accusing um and sort of come to an agreement and tell them how they feel and sort things out amongst themselves What are the implications of this on the survivor?
5: So this is an (laughs) attempt, a clear attempt by SOAS to wash their hands of any responsibility to take care of the people within their own community. There has been uh, evidence that SOAS will, rather than dealing with these cases internally, they will send them to the police or, as you were explaining, ask them to deal with it themselves, asking survivors to to email the, the person who is harassing them, which is not what any procedure should Yeah, this isn't what any procedure should look like that looks to access justice for survivors. Survivors shouldn't be made to sit in a room or deal directly with the person who has perpetrated harassment or violence against them.
3: So what would you say are the current flaws of the complaints procedure here at SOAS? Could you give us a few examples? Yeah, so as
4: mentioned before, the main thing is that it's not accessible and it's not confidential or survivor-centered. So if a survivor were to try and access these procedures, they're very confusing and students are usually encouraged to drop any complaints that they've made because the procedures are just too long and too confusing using. Um, The next concrete thing about the SOAS policies that could be criticized is that the points of contact that are kind of outlined in the complaints procedure are, for example, head of departments or a so-called information compliance manager where it is not really clear what kind of training these people have. For example, if you think about the very sensitive information that they survivors are kind of made to share in those situations, it might not be comfortable for them to share it with a head of department or with a person they might, not, n- might have not never met or don't know who they are. There needs to be a very clear outline and it needs to be easy to find as well for survivors. So, for example, for me trying to research the procedures that are in place, it was very, very disheartening and I wasn't in a state of distress in that moment. I was not a survivor trying to access this procedure. I was just a person trying to do my research and I I got really frustrated. So you can only imagine what it must be like if you're a survivor and you're trying to access these procedures. And another point that we want to point out is that there are um, flaws when it comes to the residential halls. So it's not very clear whatsoever some standards on when it comes to harassment and gender-based violence that doesn't happen on campus, but happens in SOAS or University of London residential halls. And it's also very unclear as to what SOAS is on staff on student harassment. Uh, so this is another very, very important aspect that needs to be outlined and talked about. And just to
5: add about the point of contact, person who you are asked to first report to is your first point of contact. And for many people, this is the uh, department head. And that's just to say that students shouldn't be made to go to somebody with whom they have an Academic relationship to talk about such a vulnerable um, experience
3: because of the inadequate complaints procedure at SOAS. Uh, what are the implications on the survivor, the person who is putting in a complaint? So. I think the m- major thing about the
4: current way SOS is handling um, complaints by survivors is that it's uh, a very re-traumatizing process for survivors, and that there aren't any services in place that can accommodate this this kind of feeling and this kind of trauma. And it's it's um, a procedure that kind of that kind of treats survivors as though they have to prove that they've been hurt, they have to prove that something has been done to them, so they're kind of treated as though they are the perpetrators. And I think this is like a major traumatizing aspect of how SOAS is currently handling um, any complaints by survivors.
5: This can derail your academic career as well. When you don't have access to academic accommodations and counseling and um, student accommodation changes, this can totally derail the process that you're going through in school because when it takes place within your academic community, it seems as though there aren't any options. Students, students begin to, to fail in their daily acad- academic endeavours because of, of the trauma they've experienced.
3: How do you envisage a sexual harassment policy that works for survivors? So one very important aspect to this
4: is that it needs to be clear that not every survivor has the same needs and has the same approach to their healing process. So every person experiences healing in a different way. And it's important that there are multiple options in place for survivors. So there is not just one way of dealing with this. Um, and as part of um, trying to get a better understanding of what survivors and the SOAS community needs. Um, Account for This is planning on publishing a survey so that um, the SOAS community can explicitly respond to what their um, needs are and what they want from SOAS. And there are also external meetings with organisations in place that Account for This is doing to get a better sense of policies that are appropriate
3: in a university setting that um, respond to survivors' needs. What advice can you give to someone who is thinking about reporting sexual harassment or assault at SOAS.
5: We don't want to discourage people from reporting or silence survivors who want to access justice, but at this time um, we feel particularly uncomfortable directing people to a process that we know doesn't work or operate the way that um, it should. We want to encourage survivors to reach out to our community and into resources within the Greater London community so that we can put people into contact with other survivors who are going through the same struggles within our community and within the Greater London community.
3: Finally, how can people get involved with your campaign? So, Account for This is a community led
4: campaign that can be accessible to anyone that wants to get in touch. There's a Facebook page that's called Account for This SOAS. There's also a Twitter account um, with the same name, Account for This SOAS. So, our email address is a the number four T so us, at gmail.com. And there's also a Facebook page um, with the name Account for This SOAS. And there's also a Twitter account with the same name. So, if anyone wants to get in touch directly, these are the the point of contact thank you so much for coming in today and getting involved with our podcast thank you for having us well that brings
0: us to the end of this episode and thank you for joining us
1: please let us know what you think what does consent mean to you what do you want to know more about fill in the google form in the show notes and let us know what you think
0: and remember to stay up to date through the soas radio website at soasradio.org thank you for listening.